very nice to see all of you today. Nice to be in this place and meet with our God. When we come to church, as you know, we don't just come to meet with each other. Uh, We talk about going to church, coming to church. We're really, what that means is we're coming to a person. We're coming to our creator. And it's helpful for me to ponder that, to uh, offer to God worship, I hope, is acceptable uh, in his sight. I'd like to start with a question. question is this, when we talk about Jesus Christ, when we read about the Savior, we, we, we asked ourselves this question, it's asked in scripture, who can this be? We need to really, and I'm speaking to myself first, ponder that question uh, when we gather together to call on the name of the Lord, to offer praise to him. Who is he anyway? And as we increase in understanding, and as we'll see in scripture today, uh, the disciples were not all A-plus students. I mean, it took them a while to grasp who he was, and the more that they understood, the more that they uh, dedicated themselves to living the Christian life, the better understanding they had. But what we're going to see today is they're still asking this question. Who is he? And more specifically, who can this be? Now, I would like, we might as well uh, do this at the very beginning. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 8. We'll start there. The Expositor's Bible Commentary uh, makes this statement about the, uh, the subject we're considering today, which is Christ's transfiguration. Uh, The event is in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in the Gospel of John. And the statement that the Expositor's Bible Commentary makes is this. This is the most significant event between Christ's birth and his passion or his death. And uh, so it should be very helpful. Let's look if we could, at verse 24, Luke chapter 8 and verse 24. This is the scene, you remember it well, it's been uh, burnt into our memories when Jesus calms the storm. Remember that scene? That's a great scene. And and we'll pick up the story here. Uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 24, it says, they went and woke him. (laughs) And that's that's not a woke (laughs) idea, you know. (laughs) He was sleeping in the boat in the middle of the storm. <clears throat> when, you, when you compare the, the synoptic gospels about this, this is a, a massive storm. They're in a boat with Jesus in the middle of the night, in the middle of the lake. And they came and, as the text says, they woke him. And 
So verse 24, it says, And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, rebuked the wind, the raging of the waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? Now, it's kind of an odd question, uh, but when you read the context, you find out that when they got into the boat, uh, he said, Let's get in the boat and go to the other side. He didn't say, let's get in the boat and go to the bottom. (laughs) And so he asked them this question, where's your faith? And they were afraid. And the emotions in this story that we'll read from text to text, I, I would like to advise that we grasp the emotion that is recorded in Scripture the best we can. It will help us enter into the uh, historic narrative that we're reading. Where's your faith? They were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another. Now, (laughs) get this scene. He stands up, he calms the storm. And we would imagine that these guys, they're speaking rather quietly (laughs) to each other. I don't want to read more into the text that's not there. But they, they say to one another, who is this then? Now, what I'm reading, and when I titled the message, Who Can This Be? That's the uh, rendition of the New King James Version, the Christian Standard Bible. Who can this be? And so they marvel, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands the winds and the water, and they obey him? Uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but uh, he was known, along with others, for this uh, classic memorable statement. Everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Unless your name is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And that's what we're reading here. Now, this is a clear picture of Christ's deity. Uh, It was just a month ago in December. uh, We were singing great Christmas uh, carols. Charles Wesley and his Christmas carol, written, by the way, in uh, 1739. If you're singing a song (laughs) that's over 250 years old, it's a pretty good song. And uh, the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, has this message that we're reading about here. That verse 2 out of that song says this, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And this is what uh, the transfiguration of Christ is emphasizing. I'd like to suggest that. In verse 3 of that hymn uh, are these words. Mild he lays his glory by. And born that man no more may die. And uh, a, a great subject. We want to become, I'd like to suggest that we want to become like the Apostle John. When the Apostle John, uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry, He had been crucified. We remember the story. The disciples went into (laughs) deep depression. 
And then Jesus appears to ten of them. You remember the story, Judas Iscariot failed, and uh, there are 11 left. And Jesus appeared to 10 of the 11, and the disciples went and told Thomas, better known uh, in history now as Doubting Thomas, and they said to him, we've seen the Lord. And you, and you remember his re- Thomas's reaction to that. He was one of those people that demanded proof. You know, if you can prove it to me, then I'll believe. And so the Lord let him live with that attitude for a whole week. Read the story. And then the disciples were together again. Now the eleven are together. Thomas is with them. Jesus appears again. <clears throat> and like he always did when he appeared, fear not. And do you know who he looked at first in that meeting? Can you imagine this scene? Jesus pops into the uh, meeting of the disciples, and the first one that he looks at is Thomas. Thomas, you needed, now I'm ad-libbing here, Thomas, you needed proof, didn't you? You said that you would believe if you could take your fingers and put them in the holes in my hands. So, uh, here you go, Thomas. You want to take, go ahead, take your finger, put it in the hole in my hand. You, you're the person that needed proof. You said that you wanted to take your hand and put it into my side. And you remember that when the Lord Jesus was crucified, that the Roman uh, professional executioner used his lance to plunge it into the chest of the Lord Jesus under his ribcage, leaving a gaping hole. Thomas, you wanted to take your hand, and you said this, just... I'll believe if I can take my hand and put it into his side. That, that's, that's pretty wild. Well, Thomas, now's your chance. And I'd like to suggest that we should become like Thomas as we grow in understanding about who he is because he gave a good answer. He gave a great answer. Remember this doubting Thomas. He says, my Lord and my God. This is a, what we're looking at today. Uh, what uh, we have read in Scripture is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our God. When, we, when we're faced with this question, who can this be? The simple answer is, my Lord and my God. But in the text here in Luke, we're left uh, leaving the disciples scratching their heads with, uh, without an answer. We've never seen anything like this. Who can this be? Well, uh, 
let's let's talk about before we get into the transfiguration. I'd like to talk about uh, the uh, larger context of the story, and and so let's call this the preface to the uh, to Christ's transfiguration, the larger context, so we can. Uh, get a running start, this background information I found to be, personally found to be uh, very helpful. And in chapter 8, there's some information there. I'll try to quickly go through this to help us answer the question in the disciples' mind about who this is. Now, he's displayed his power over nature in calming the storm, but if you look at verse 33, and we're still in uh, Luke 8, in verse 33, it says, uh, Then the demons came out of the man and entered into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. We know that story. This is uh, Jesus encountering the man named Legion, two uh, poor man possessed with multiple demons. We know the story. And the demons are cast out of the man, entered in, enter into the pig, and so... Uh, Jesus, at this point, is display, he's displayed his power over nature. Now he's displaying his power over demons. Who is this? This is the man that controls demons. This is the man that controls the weather. But Luke 8 continues, and let's uh, go down to verse uh, 46 and 47. Verse 46 says this, Jesus said, uh, someone touched me. Remember, remember this, he's in a crowd, a crowd of people. And, you know, they're shoulder to shoulder. And then Jesus stopped. Somebody touched me. Somebody touched you. Everybody's touching you. But there's something different about this scene and this particular touch. And verse 46, Jesus said, Someone touched me. I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. This is, this is the man. He has power over nature. He has power over demons. He has power over disease. But it, it doesn't end there. Let's jump down to verse 54. And the text says this. Again, another scene, but taking her by the hand, he called and said, child, arise, and her spirit returned. Remember, this is Jesus, one of those rare occasions in Scripture, there are a few of them, uh, specifically where Jesus raises people from the dead, and he does this to this little girl. Taking her, verse 54, taking her by the hand, he called, child, arise. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. This is the man he had. Who is this? Who can this be? This is the man that has power over nature. He has uh, power over demons, power over disease, power over death. This is the one that we can call our Lord and our God. Let's move on to chapter 9 and verse 18. We're still looking at the background information. Uh, chapter 9 and, and verse 18. Now it happened as Jesus was praying, as he was praying alone. 
that his disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, Elijah, some of the prophets. And then verse 20, he gets more personal with them. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? This is, this is the question of the hour for you and me. At some point in our Christian life, we heard about this. We heard about him and, and uh, what he has done for us and all that he can do. And we've already, this morning, we have developed in our mind who he is. We, we came in here today. We have this preconceived idea about who he is. <laughs> I'd like to suggest that there's, there's more to learn about who he is. And the more that we uh, learn about him, uh, the better our Christian lives are going to be. Who do you? And this is the question that the Lord is concerned about for us today. (laughs) What are people saying out there about me? That's a good question. Appreciate your answers. Thank you. But my real concern is what do, you, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? If, if you and I ask ourselves that question, there is potential for us to increase in the knowledge of God and uh, be able to give a more accurate question that is going to help us in our Christian life. And we're going to see this more in a moment. Here, here is Christ's uh, deity being displayed uh, in the transfiguration, what we're uh, hopefully getting to. Uh, his deity displayed under a veil of humanity. So we've talked about his nature. This is God incarnate. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 21, there, there does seem to be a shift in Jesus' message when he first came. Uh, when he came, he, he sermon on the mount. That was a great message. Uh, Beatitudes, great message. He's saying some wonderful things. People are impressed. Crowds are impressed. Crowds are coming to hear him speak. The great teacher. And the things that he does. We've just never seen anything like this before. But there is a shift that takes place in his message, in his ministry. And so because we're in Luke, let's go ahead and look at verse 21. Matthew is more specific about this when Matthew, I should have written it down, uh, something like, at this point, a specific point in the ministry changes taking place in his message. It's not that the message is changing. There's an addition, important addition that is added to his message. Let's look at it. Verse 21, uh, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, which, which is an odd uh, statement. That's, if you're reading through the Gospels, you'll read it in every, uh, read it in the, in the Gospel accounts. Uh, 
He strictly charged them, commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief chief, uh, priests, the scribes, and be killed and uh, be on, on the third day raised. All of a sudden, he's talking about suffering and the cross being rejected. And this, really with the 12, it just doesn't compute. And... We'll read about this a little bit more as uh, we continue. Well, let's, let's look at verse 43. Let's keep on going here on this thought. Verse 43 says this, All were astonished at the majesty of God, and that's, a way, that's the way that the uh, miracle that he had just performed is described. Uh, we were, we're beholding the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears. Let's stop right there. I'm sure you're probably like me, that a lot of times if I'm not paying attention, you know, it goes in one ear, and where does it go? (laughs) It goes right out the other. It goes in one ear and out the other. I think the disciples were like that. And at this point, Jesus says, verse 44, let these words sink down into your... You've got to grasp this. You've got to get this. Here's what he said, the Son of Man. Great title out of Daniel, book of Daniel. Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Look at verse 45. They're just absolute confusion. Verse 45, they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them uh, so that they might not perceive it, and, th- and they were afraid to ask him what it means. I'm sitting through a message. I'm here. Jesus taught. I don't understand what he's saying, but I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask. And our God is very patient with us. And when we have those experiences where we hear something from the word, I don't get that. He's very patient with us and will continue to teach us. Uh, There's, in the preface to Christ's transfiguration, there's an understanding about his nature. We need to get that. He he is uh, the incarnate God Uh, His mission, there's a shift taking place now about suffering and rejection. And with the disciples, hey, we can relate to their excitement every time Jesus healed somebody and the crowds are coming. It's just so great. And then all of a sudden, rejection, suffering, death. Wait a minute. I didn't know that this was part of the program. And that's true in the Christian life. And this is one of the practical elements in the story that if we don't have a continual grasp about who he is when we encounter like the disciples encountered, disappointment in the Christian life, confusion in the Christian life, rejection, suffering in the Christian life, will have forgotten the correct answer to the question, who can this be? If we can grasp that and lay hold of that, 
it is going to help us in the future. Somewhere down the road, uh, around the next corner, you know, we're going to encounter the hardships of entering into God's kingdom. Disappointment, confusion, rejection, and then the king of terrors when we encounter death. He wants us to know who he is and what he can do for us. And this is the experience that he's having with the disciples. They've got to understand who he is. They've got to understand his mission. And uh, in verse 26, let's go there. Chapter 9, verse uh, 26. And verse 26 and 27 is a picture of Christ's return. That it does happen to be important in this story because of what we've just talked about. Jesus' new shift in his message, talking about suffering, death, and rejection. This is, you know, this could upset the apple cart, so to say. Well, here in verse 26... Jesus says this, Whosoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And here, the Son of Man is, is said to be bringing his kingdom to earth I'm sure you already know this, that when that happens, everything's going to be okay. And all the things that are uh, deep down in, in our personality that may trouble us about what we're experiencing in the Christian life, opposition, difficulty, problems, Everything's going to be, everything is going to be okay. In the end, the last chapter of the Christian life, you win. <laughs> we win. And it's easy to forget that. And if that is our hope, as a matter of fact, we've, we've talked about uh, hope here uh, since my wife and I have been coming. And uh, th this will help us. Well, here he's talking about his return. In verse 26, he's talking about a distant, glorious return in the future. And, uh, you know, it's, it's theoretically, it's, it's easy to talk about a prediction in the future, right? But he does talk about that, a, a distant reality of his his return in the future but look what look at verse 27 he says i tell you truly there's some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of god i'd like to suggest along with others that uh, when he says some standing here that he's referring to peter james and john the three men that are going to be mentioned in verse 28 there about eight days after these sayings he took with him Peter, James, and John went up into the mountain to pray. 
little prayer meeting on the mountaintop, and he's transfigured there. Well, here in verse 27, when he's talking about some standing here, I think he's talking about Peter, James, and John. And then he says, they will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And uh, there are different ideas about what this means. But, but again, I, I would agree with those that see this as now not a distant reference to the second coming but actually a near picture of his return, which is, that picture is seen in the transfiguration. What is the transfiguration? Well, part of the answer to that is, uh, here we have a picture of the kingdom of God come, a near picture. It's only one week away from their experience. Well, enough on the uh, preface to the the transfiguration. Let's actually get to the transfiguration. It begins in verse 28, and it says this, Now eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, and John, went into the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Uh, Luke Uh, does not use the word transfiguration like Matthew uses it, like Mark uses it. Luke just describes the transfiguration. And as we look at this, what I'd like to do is zoom in on the different people that were present when this happened and the things that they said. And so we'll begin by talking about uh, Jesus as the first person that's speaking in this account, and as we just read, uh, verse 28, eight days later, Peter, James, and John went to the mountain to pray. Here's Jesus, three disciples, going up the mountain to, to do what? To speak to the Father. They went up there to pray. The mountain, by the way, uh, believers debate about that. It's not named in Scripture, which indicates it's really not that important, but uh, uh, I'd like to suggest, along with others, that Mount Hermon is a good candidate for the destination of the Transfiguration, which is uh, over 9,000 feet in elevation above sea level. That is way up there. I mean, that's snow-capped mountain, and uh, that's the meeting here. We're taking a uh, trip up the mountain and it's to pray. We're, ha- we're going to have a prayer meeting, small prayer meeting. Peter, James, and John, Jesus. Where's the prayer meeting? Where are we supposed to meet? Well, see that mountain there in the distance? We're going to go up there. And this was a common experience as you read through the Gospels, uh, these mountaintop uh, experiences. And Jesus is first Uh, speaking to his father. But then in verse 30, it goes on and says, and behold, two men were talking with him, not talking uh, to him, talking with him. There's a discussion going on. And so Jesus is first speaking to his father. Then he's uh, speaking with uh, two visitors that are uh, going to show up. 
Well, the text in verse 29 says he's, he was praying the appearance, and here's the transfiguration, the appear, verse 29, the appearance of his flesh was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. The uh, original term here is where we get our English word metamorphosis, which just means a change in form. It's kind of like the little caterpillar that uh, we know about. Just follow them. Find out where they, where they hang out because, wow, the process is going to be amazing. A metamorphosis, a change in form, and uh, you'll, you'll see this wiggly worm turn into an adult butterfly. A monarch. These, these, it's a great uh, change in nature. The appearance has changed, and this is what is temporarily uh, taking place in the life of the Lord uh, Jesus. He's transfigured, a metamorphosis. Uh, Matthew 17, we don't turn there, but the text there says that his face was shining like the sun, uh, and his uh, NIV actually in Matthew uh, says this, that his clothing was bright as uh, a flash of lightning. It's hard to put what was happening and, and what the disciples saw, it's hard to put it into words. Face is shining like the sun. The next time that you have the experience, and I had this uh, uh, a few weeks ago, in anticipation of looking further into this text and had the sun, it was just, you know, you're driving down the road and you make a turn and there's the sun. You just can't, it's hard to, uh, to realize what's happening here. Here's the face of the Lord Jesus, bright like the sun, and his clothes are white and glistening like lightning flashes. How do you describe this? And the uh, writers of Scripture are doing the best that they can do, obviously under inspiration. But uh, by the way, let me just point out there's no halo, right? <laughs> the halo comes from medieval art. We understand that. But there's no halo here. His true inner glory of his divine nature is shining through his flesh. It's a reminder of Psalm 104. Listen to this. Psalm 104. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You were clothed with splendor and majesty. The covering, uh, you cover yourself with light like a cloak. This is our God. This is who he is. When the Apostle John, and we just read that he, that he was there in verse 28, Peter, James, and John. This is a John that wrote the Gospel of John. And we won't turn there, but John 1, John 1, these are great verses. You remember John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is, who is this? This is God. And John 1.14, and the word became flesh. That's the incarnation. Where the uh, glory of God, the shining face, the dazzling white uh, clothes 
are concealed in a body of flesh. And so John says in 1.14, he became flesh. He, he lived among us. <laughs> and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that was John's uh, recorded memory of, of the scene. And you'll remember along with me, uh, John 17, that's the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus in John 17. And he says this, this is his prayer. Hear the words of his prayer. Oh, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had before the world was created. Something. Well, uh, we're surprised to continue and to read in verse 30, Luke 9, verse 30, it says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Wait a minute. All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up? I mean, these men, they've been gone for years. They, they departed a long time ago. And Moses is a lot longer than Elijah. And all of a sudden they're back and glorified. Well, let me read it again. Verse 30, the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and they, watch this, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, for Peter, James, and John, here's this reminder again. You Got to go to Jerusalem. This is a turning point in the ministry. We're going to leave Galilee, the great Galilean ministry there, and the next destination on the itinerary is Jerusalem. And so the Lord occasionally and repeatedly kept talking about God. And we understand, you know, we can stay, we can take a step back and look at it and understand the Lord is just preparing them for what's coming. And so they're talking about his uh, uh, his death on the cross. In uh, I wonder why Moses and Elijah. Well. Once again, we're not told why, but uh, some interesting comparisons between the two men, both experienced mountaintop experiences, I guess we can call it that. Uh, Moses on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, Elijah on Mount Carmel defeating the prophets of Baal. Uh, both men had miracles associated with their ministry. Moses, the Ten Commandments in the Exodus from Egypt. Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Just amazing stories. Both were known for their unusual departures from planet Earth. When Moses passed away, he didn't have a big funeral. There's only one person that came. And that was God. Now, if you think about a funeral, if there's only one person coming and it's God, don't be too concerned. A lot of people didn't show up. 
And what the text says, Deuteronomy 34, 6, the text says this, God, God buried him. God buried him in the valley of Moab opposite Beth Peor, and no one knows his grave to this day. A hidden grave. Although if you take trips to the Holy Land, <laughs> there'll be uh, different places. I'm sure you can pay some nice entry fees to, you know, go in and check out, uh, you know, the highlights of the area. Well, uh, that's Moses, but Elijah, what kind of a departure did he have? This was, this was mind-blowing. Chariot of fire and horses of fire that transport him to glory. Both of these men had unusual departures from planet Earth. But as you and I read the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, guess who's named in Malachi chapter 4? Moses and Elijah. But what they're talking about is what's important. Uh, you'll see there... Uh, that they're talking about his decease. Yeah, verse 31, they appeared and they spoke of his departure, his King James says decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is the shift in the message. And in uh, verse 22, we talked about this, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, raised on the third day. And uh, if, if you jump down to verse 43, 43, they were astonished at the majesty of God. It's a reference to the healing that just took place. Uh, and we've been here, we've read these words, again, talking about his death. But let's go over to chapter 18, Luke chapter 18 and verse 31 This shift in his message about the cross has, has got to be understood by the 11. Again, Judas is gone. And in verse 31, the text says this, Taking the 12, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, shamefully treated, spit on. And after flogging him, they will kill him. On, on the third day, he will rise. Uh, he's getting very specific there about what he's going to experience in terms of his suffering. But... Look at these surprising words in verse 34. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he was saying. What's all this business about suffering and rejection and death? And, and he did include rising again from the dead. Well, you know, you and I, and I'm sure that we do understand this, we're on this side of the story. We get it. We, we've... We've read about this. 
We know what happened, but the disciples, put yourself in their sandals. They, they don't, uh, you know, they even miss this idea rising. Yes, well, we understand. Yes, uh, Daniel chapter 12, we know about all the rising. That's the eschatological rising from the dead. We get that. We know that. But it doesn't register to them that Jesus is the one that is going to conquer death. Let's turn to John 3.16. John, let's start in John 3.14. John 3.14 is a an Old Testament story. Uh, actually a great story out of Numbers 21. But here in verse 14, the text reminds us of what took place historically. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Remember that story. It was one of the judgments that the Lord God had sent against the nation. And, and the judgment was... <laughs> slithering poisonous snakes going into the camp and, and biting uh, people. And then they, it was, they were poisonous and people were dropping dead. And so the nation and the leaders call out to God. And remember what the solution was. Take a pole, make a serpent of bronze, a little statue, bronze serpent, put it on the pole, lift it up high so people can see it. And by the way, we're not talking about, you know, a family reunion here of 100 people, right? Uh, look at the estimates of, of how many Jews uh, were part of the nation at that time. You're over 2 million people. It's going to take some time. People are going to be dropping left and right, and they did. But the Lord Jesus takes that story, and then in verse 14 and following, it says, just like Moses, when he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And Jesus takes this story, an amazing picture of the cross, of his own death on the cross, and he makes this comparison, just like that bronze serpent up on a pole. You just look and live, and you'll be okay. He takes that story, and he... He brings that story into his own suffering and death for Nicodemus. You remember, that's John 3. And talks about the need of faith and the blessing of eternal life in verse 16. And it's a great comparison. Well, let's go back to Luke 9. do our best here to uh, finish our thoughts. In Luke 9, 
Well, Jesus has spoken. Uh, Elijah and Moses have spoken. And now Peter speaks in verse 32 and verse 33. Peter and those that were with him, they were heavy with sleep. And when they became uh, fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as these men were parting from them, it's like this, this conversation's over. Moses has come, Elijah has come, Jesus is there, they're glorified, they're talking about his death in Jerusalem on the cross, it's all over. Moses and Elijah apparently turned, walked, it's over, it's all over, and Peter doesn't want it to be over. We can understand that, we can relate to that, Uh, and... So in verse 33, we'll pick up there. As the men were departing from him, Peter speaks up. Peter says to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then, you know, here's he gets an F on the test here. You know, not knowing what he said. I felt like that before. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you felt like that. You know, you just, you have a, a scene. You just don't know what to say, but you say something. Just say something. And it's been said there are two kinds of people, those that have something to say and those that have to say something. <laughs> and we can kind of relate to that. Well, well, well this, this suggestion that Peter makes, and let me make three little shelters. Uh, this was a common experience in Jewish life. You'll remember the Feast of Tabernacles where the Jews every year, and these men were experts about making these little huts, if you will. And it was a reminder about the 40-year wandering in the wilderness when this is what they lived in. And every year, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would uh, reminisce about the uh, great provision of God in, the, in, in that. And, and Moses, with all this glory, uh, Moses and Elijah and all this glory, and, and Peter just makes this selection. He, just really, he doesn't know what he's saying. But what's the problem? <laughs> well, we can continue here. And verse 30, the men were departing from him. Make three tents. Verse 34, when he was saying these things, <clears throat> Here's the scene. Moses and Elijah are leaving. Peter speaks up. And then verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. A cloud appears. Matthew says it's a bright cloud. This is not a normal cloud. This is the, what has been known as the Shekinah. Yeah. Uh, the Shekinah means literally the presence, the present one. It's a non-biblical term, kind of like Trinity, uh, is a reference to our glorious God, the three in one. And the Shekinah is, again, it's, how do you you describe this? And and so uh, the the cloud became known as the uh, Shekinah. Glory, the bright shining cloud, it filled the tabernacle, it filled uh, the temple. And in the book of Leviticus, God said, I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. 
And so the disciples are experiencing this. The cloud came, overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. You get the idea that there's the cloud uh, and it's, it, it's coming to engulf the whole area and the people that are present. And, and they're just absolutely terrified. What is, what is this? I mean, they understand. They've grown up with these stories. And now, uh, verse 34 says, the cloud came over, shouted them. They were afraid as they entered, and the voice comes from the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. If we could go to uh, Matthew 17, and we'll, this will be our last reference. In Matthew 17 and in verse 5, we'll pick up the story there. He was still speaking, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The question of the hour is, who can this be? The, the answer is, this is God's Son. John would say, the Lord, my God. This is my son, listen to him. There are a lot of voices in our day, in our lives, that are crying out for attention. And the, the voice that we need to hear is the voice of the Son of God in Scripture. His word, his written word uh, that has all authority. This scene is coming to an end and in verse 6, Matthew 17, 6, the disciples heard this. They fell on their faces and they're terrified. Get that emotion. We have to get that emotion in this story. These men are absolutely uh, beside themselves with terror. The text says they fell on their faces. The three men collapse. They're face down in the dirt. They're terrified. And then the text says in verse 7, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Arise and have no fear. They lifted up their eyes. They saw no one but Jesus only. Here are the men. They fall down, face down on the ground. We would imagine their eyes are closed. They're terrified. And then the next thing they know, they, they feel a touch. This is the master's touch. And they look up. Verse 8, they lifted up their eyes. They saw no one but Jesus only. He had said at the end of verse 7, arise and have no fear. Everything's back to normal. <laughs> the story that we've just read about has come to an end. And here we are. The story's over. <laughs> well, so what do we do with it? We leave with the memory of who he is. Who can this be? This is the, the, the living God, the Shekinah, veiled in flesh, the Godhead sea, who has, who has said to us the parting words. These are the words that are still ringing in our ears. This is my son whom, whom I am well pleased. Hear him. 
This is what we walk away with from the story. This is my son. Hear him. Years ago, and I'm showing my age here, uh, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a TV commercial promoting a financial firm that showed a tennis match going on. And in, in the screen, and, and if you're my age, you'll, you'll probably remember that. Uh, if, if, in the tennis match, it, it showed the people, and their heads are going, you know, it's a tennis match. <laughs> Back and forth. If you see a tennis match, it's, it's usually on the court, you know, not in the stands. Because the people heads, it's just going back and forth and back. And then all of a sudden, somebody in the stands uh, says, uh, by the way, my investment broker works for E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and as soon as he says that line, everything stops in the match and you hear these words that uh, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. <laughs> Today, we don't care about a financial firm. What we should care about, I'm sure what we do care about, is what does the son say? And so whatever he's saying to you, me, then consider it and Follow him. Believe on him. Who can this be? This is our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with us as we live the Christian life, trying to please you, do your will. Thank you for the things you've taught us, and we do pray that you drive these uh, words, your words of scripture deep down into us uh, that we may live lives pleasing in your sight. We've asked this in his name. Amen.